Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. It is just thick in here. It's rich. So honored by uh, Pastor Joel and his family and Steve and the crew and just everybody here at, at Sozo. I'm just incredibly, incredibly honored to be here. This area and this part of the world is really, really important to us. And, uh, and I love conferences for this reason. And that is that only hungry people show up. Yeah. Because you don't have to be here. You're here because you want to be here. Otherwise, you just wouldn't. And so you bring hunger into this room. And, and I'll tell you this, this, Joel knows this is true. You ever get up in front of a crowd that's not hungry? It's difficult to create an appetite in people who have none. But when there's hunger in a room, they'll pull things out of you. People will pull things out of you that you didn't know were there. And God is always faithful, right, Joel, to make us look like geniuses. And we have no idea really what we're talking about. So when you surrender to let the voice of the Lord speak through you. Connect to the needs in people's hearts in the room. I learn right along with you. And everything I'm going to share with you tonight is stuff that I've learned, but I guarantee you I'm going to say some things tonight I've never heard myself say. So we're going to learn together. And I got to tell you, I've been a little dangerous this year. I don't know what it is with 2020, but I've said stuff this year that I've never heard myself say before. It's freaking me out. It's like, whoa. It's language I've never, never, I've just never even danced around some of this stuff because it's so easy to be labeled. But uh, the great civil war of the new reformation is on the goodness of God. On the goodness of God. God is good. Well, there's some. Yeah, it might be good now, but just wait. No. No, no, no. I have a couple of simple life messages that I, that I just live by. One of them is that God is better than you think, and you cannot imagine him better than he is. It's literally impossible for you and I to imagine the creator in whose image and likeness we are made to be better than he actually is. None of us are ever going to get to heaven and go, eh, I thought you'd be better. <laughs> Never going to happen. We are always eternally going to be undone by the goodness of God. How else do we explain the angels who can't stop helicoptering around the throne repeating holy, 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 holy? What is, what is this holy, holy thing that they're repeating? It's purely based on the reality that every second of eternity they're just seeing something new and better than they ever thought was even possible. And I just believe when we see him for who he truly is, he's irresistible. And God in the incarnation hid from humanity. The very first thing God creates, it seems, is a quest for God. And he hides, in a sense, drawing us to a place of surrendering to the reality of his presence in, through, around. Holds all things together by the power of his word and the word of his power literally is all sound that's holding everything together. Everything that you see is, is more nothing than it is something, though it looks like it's physical and it looks like it's tangible and it's got substance. Why does this molecule hold together with that molecule? We don't really know. If you ask a scientist, why does my hand not just go flying off? How do these molecules know that they are Bill? Eh, we don't know. The brightest minds in the universe in order to somehow dismiss even the notion of the idea that God exists, has to come up with something called a multiverse, which is just like an infinite number of universes in some sort of realm or dimension. And they've come up with at least 13 dimensions that they say they know of. But every time they discover something new, what they end up finding out is that the Bible wrote about this stuff a long time ago. In him all things consist and he holds all things together. 
But the word of God, literally the declarative force of the word of God as God creates speech, empowers this entire existence that we live. He speaks and realities are shifted, formed, made. And this entire universe literally is a song. It's a symphony. It's the symphony of God. It's God literally singing this entire thing into existence. You are the song of God. The Bible says that he rejoices over us with singing. And songs have lyrics, and those lyrics carry weight. What is the words of the lyrics to the song that God has been singing over your life since before the foundation of the world? You know why we worship God? Why we're even drawn to do this? Because every appetite you have for him only mirrors an appetite that he has for you because you're made in his image and likeness. We're only giving back to him just a, just a nanosecond of what he's been singing over us for eternity. How many thoughts does he have over you? Psalm 139 says that the precious thoughts of God towards you outnumber the sand. I'm no expert in sand, but I do live in Florida, which is just one gigantic sandbar held together by Disney magic or something. I don't know. I'm not even talking about the entire state of Florida, the Sahara Desert. I'm talking about 10 grains. If you could just believe 10 grains of sand worth of what God believes about you, just 10, just 10. It would change the way you see yourself and change the way you see everybody around you. But then you stand at the edge of the Sahara and you watch sandstorms blow and you hear the words of King David. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber all of the sand. God thinks about you more than you think about you. So tonight I want to take you on a journey. And over the next few minutes, we're going to go all the way from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> Literally. And, uh, and this is a life message that has <clears throat> emerged for me in the past few years. Besides God is better than you think, you can always imagine, can't imagine him better than he is. This would be a life message that I would say has been a, a staple for me. And that is this. this. This is a reality for me. It's becoming a greater reality. And that is this. You are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. You are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. No distance, no separation between you and him. Right now, it might feel like it, but there's a big difference between feeling that distance and separation and the reality of what he believes to be true. And tonight, I want to hopefully impact your belief if you've ever had a perspective of distance and separation between you and God, I'm going to use these two chairs to do it. So every time you guys stack chairs, you're going to remember this message. It would be my heart's desire for you to be able to take what I share with you tonight and actually repeat it. And uh, I think every teacher, that's their thing. It's like, it's one thing to get up and say things that people go, oh, that was really cool and those some nice thoughts. I have no interest in imparting information to you if it doesn't become revelation to you. And when it becomes revelation to you, then it becomes yours. You own it. You take it. You run with it. And I guarantee you, in, in a very short amount of time, you're going to have an instance where you can grab a couple of chairs and you can actually sit down and explain the gospel to somebody in a way maybe they've never understood it before. And we're going to see what we can just do with two chairs and the greatest message in the entire world, the gospel. In the beginning, God creates. You actually begin in God, united with him. You began in the heart and the mind of God. He first thought you up. This is your origin, is in him. And in him, he didn't think, today I'm going to make a thief, I'm going to make a drunk, I'm going to make, a, uh, I'm going to make an adulterer, I'm going to make a murderer, I'm going to make a liar. He didn't think those things. Those things become our identity based upon a twist of something that God gave. There's only one gift giver, but Satan is a talent scout. <clears throat> but when God first thought of you, he had some really good thoughts. 
So God creates, and this is the way that God creates. When he starts in Genesis, when he starts creating, the first thing he creates is light. It's the means by which we see anything at all. The means by which we perceive anything at all. And he's not going to create the sun, moon, stars, or anything like that for days. But what, what he starts with is just beginning with the means by which we see. And then God starts doing something fascinating. He speaks, and when he speaks, he creates an environment like a dead environment, like the ocean, the water, the land, the, the Bible calls it heavens, but it's the sky. So you have sky, land, water. He speaks and he speaks environments into being. And then what he does is most fascinating. He literally talks to the substance of the environment that he's just made. And when he does that, in that environment is produced life. And that life is actually meant to draw its, its essence from the environment that has been spoken to. It lives and moves and has, has its being within those environments. This sounds complicated, but it's not. When he wants to make fish, he just talks to water. And so the Bible says, it goes like this, let the sea bring forth and everything that's meant to thrive in that environment comes forth. When he wants to make plants and animals, he says, let the earth bring forth. Forth, and everything that's meant to live and move and have its being in that environment starts walking around and doing its thing. When he makes man, the pattern changes. God says this, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now who's the us he's even talking about? Well, he's not talking to angels because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. So this is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, having an internal dialogue here. Now, the interesting thing about the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, uh, we've used different things to try to explain the Trinity, an apple, uh, uh, an egg, and things like this. Here's the best way you can explain the Trinity. The Trinity is a family. And when God made us in his image and likeness, he made family. Father, mother, child. So God, Father, protector, provider, source of life from whom the family name gets its identity. Okay, Every male father in this room, in here, you carry that same nature, those same traits. They're just built into you. Protector, provider, source of life from whom the family gets its identity. Mom, the Holy Spirit actually mirrors you. The Holy Spirit is comforter, guide, teacher. When my kids would fall down, scrape their knee, they would instinctively run right by me and run to mom. Why? Because dad's going to say something stupid like, hey, it won't hurt when the pain goes away or something just off the wall like that. They know she's got the comforter gene. It's just there. Guide? Hey, guys, we don't ask directions. Women do. Before GPS, women would always ask for directions. They wanted to know exactly where we were going. They'd get the map out. Why is the voice of your GPS instinctively a woman? <laughs> Default setting. I switched it one time to a male voice, took four turns, switched it back. I didn't believe a thing the guy said. <laughs> Teacher, homeschooling families, dad might say he's involved, but come on, we all know who's really doing the teaching. Right? So when it comes down to it, Fathers, you mirror Father God. Moms, you actually mirror the person of the Holy Spirit. All of us mirror Christ, the peer and friend relationships we have. Jesus is called the firstborn of many brethren. What do you get from your older siblings? You get hand-me-downs. What do you get from Jesus? In John 17, he said, Father, the glory that you've given me, I give to them. Glory is a pretty good hand-me-down. Not bad. Better than old jeans. So God has an internal dialogue. Let us, if you want to, if you want to define it, God would, would be like this, an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love, distinct but never divided, ever. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Distinct but never divided. So God, an other-centered, self-giving relationship of love mirrored in the human family has an internal dialogue. Really, it's, it's no wonder why actually the devil attacks family so strongly because if he can attack the family, then kids, an entire generation will grow up without the clearest image and likeness picture that they have of the nature, the character of who Father God is. And look at the world. So, let's go back to the pattern. When God makes fish, 
He just talks to water. When he makes plants and animals, he talks to the environment of the earth. When he makes man, he literally speaks to the environment of himself. Now, what does that tell you about where we draw our life from? What does that tell you about where we are most alive? The greatest ability you have is to be in the presence of God, to be conscious and aware of the presence of God, to be at rest in the presence of God, to know that it doesn't matter what's going on around you, inside of you, that reality of the presence of God that doesn't just rest upon you, but actually holds you together from the inside out. That is your resting place. It's your identity. It's the true you that can never be shaken. So God speaks to himself to create man in his image. And in his likeness. You say, well, the chair thing just broke down because God is spirit and we're flesh. He doesn't look like us. I get that. God is spirit and we can't really wrap our minds around that. But when God as spirit stepped into flesh in Christ, we had a really hard time telling him apart from the rest of us. So God makes man in his image and after his likeness. But it's like this. Now think about this. Man is born literally in a face-to-face encounter with God. God takes, and unlike any other creature on earth, this is how he makes man. He bends down to the earth and he picks up the mud and dirt and the clay and the sand of earth and he holds it to his face. When he's formed man, it says that he breathed into his nostrils. I want you to think about that. How close is that? He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. So what you have is the dirt and the mud of earth and then the breath of God, which there's a word for it. It goes like this, Yahweh. And suddenly you have the spirit, the very breath of God has a collision with earth. And man comes alive as a divine convergence zone between heaven and earth. Physical and spiritual. Unlike any other creation on earth, everything else is spoken into existence. Man is literally formed in the hands of God and then breathed into life. Yahweh. The very first conscious experience we ever have is opening our eyes to behold the face of a father who adores us. That's how we were born. People say nobody can see God and live. Nobody can. We were born in a face-to-face encounter with God. It's an Old Old Testament concept that Jesus completely unravels and undoes. We're born beholding the face of a father who, how many of you in here, dads, I don't know about you, but when I first laid eyes on my son, my firstborn, I sit there looking at him. I was in awe. I mean, I had, the pictures are ridiculous because I have this grin, like this look, like, I can't believe what I'm looking at. You know what I was looking at? My image and likeness. I'm looking into a face that looks like me. Now the Bible says we behold in a mirror, right? But then face to face, then we will be known. Even as we are fully known, we'll, be, we'll know even as we're fully known, we're born in a face to face encounter with God. The first thing God says about man that's not good is it's not good for man to be alone. He's not alone. He has God. But, but man is built for relationship. And keep this in mind. God didn't make man because he needed him. He didn't make man because he's like, oh, I gotta have this because I'm, I'm missing or lacking something. No, he made man because he wanted to. God, by his nature, is love. Man is created as an overflow of a God whose nature is love, because love is expressed in overflow, and God overflows into his creation of mankind. You're not God, just in case some of you are getting super uncomfortable right now. You're not God, and he's not you, but you're more than dirt. You're way more than just dirt. God is an artist. What is he doing with man? He's being creative. And what does an artist create for? He creates to express himself. 
The Bible says in the New Covenant, the Bible says that you and I are his workmanship made in Christ Jesus, developed for good works. In other words, God actually made us as a working expression of his own artistic creativity. You know who you are? You say, Bill, if I even believed half of this, it would just make me proud and you know, just fill my head with pride. Why? You didn't do it. How can you take pride for something you didn't do? When you realize who you really are, what it'll do is fill you with gratitude and it will change the way you see everybody else around you. I'm telling you, without getting this revelation, the, the reality of love your enemies is impossible because all you'll see is distance and separation from another one who's very confused, but also made in the image and likeness of a very good God. It's just lost themselves. I have no idea who they are. And you and I, are a living invitation for people to see who they really are. That when they have an encounter with you, they actually have an encounter with him. That they behold in your eyes the very wonder of God looking in awe at one who maybe has gone their own way. Man and God face to face. Man and, and, and woman are created. Woman is created from an overflow of man. And man and woman have this beautiful mandate, and that is to take care of the garden. Oh, by the way, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Endless amounts of trees. There's only one you can't eat from, and it's that one right there. Do you understand how big of a deal it is that God stacked the odds in our favor that much? He gave us choice. He gave us freedom because God didn't show up to make us religious. He showed up to make, created us to make us free. His highest value, the highest value of a God whose nature is love is freedom because love cannot be experienced without freedom. It has to exist. I know I, I'm, and you understand, I'm in a Presbyterian church, so I'm surrounded by people who don't believe in free will. But even people who don't believe in free will have to agree we got a pretty good simulation of it going on here, right? It was, this is how I handle this. Because I got, I got the Calvinists and the Arminians all together. For the theologians in the room, hang on, 30 seconds just for you. I'll say, I'll say is God sovereign? Yes, he's sovereign. Can God delegate responsibility? Well, if he can, then we have will. If he can't, then God was never sovereign to begin with. Can God delegate responsibility and choice and still retain his sovereignty? Yes, because all things are possible. So is it possible for us to actually have a will and for God to still retain sovereignty? Absolutely. And this is how we get them all to play nicely. All right, super simple. Adam and Eve one day have a conversation with a serpent. Okay? The serpent comes up to Eve and says, hey, and Adam there with her and says, See that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If you eat of that tree, you can be like God. Well, there's a problem here. Whose image and likeness were they already made in? They were made in God's image. They were already, already like God. The serpent does something fascinating here. The serpent cleverly suggests that Adam and Eve do not have what they actually do have. And then he gives them something to do to try to get it. And the tactic then is the same tactic now, and that is to try to get you to be convinced that you can obtain through works what you already possess by grace. Now, people often say that the original sin was that man wanted to be like God. No, it's not the original sin. And I don't like the term original sin either, because it subconsciously communicates that sin is your origin and it's not, okay? <clears throat> the first sin was not that man wanted to be like God. The first sin and why we ate of the tree is because we believed the lie that we were not. Wow, if we eat of that tree, we can be like God? Great, we'll do this to get that. And from then on, we've been trying to work to obtain what God has given us freely by his grace. The problem is when you try to work for what you already have, it means you've gone blind to what you already have and so you can never work enough. And that's what I call the hamster wheel of religion. Anybody been on that? Isn't that fun? That's so much fun. That treadmill, that treadmill that goes nowhere. Ah. 
Freedom is good. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the very first thing that happens is they turn and they look at each other and they suddenly have a realization. We are not wearing any clothing. And God shows up. They, they judge each other. And then when they judge each other, guilt, shame, and condemnation come into the picture. They grab fig leaves, sew them all together, and they're, you know, suddenly, boom, fashion industry is born. And God shows up in the middle of all of this, and he asks two really important questions. The first one is this. Adam, where are you? And I love what Chris Valentin says. He says, if God can't find you, you know you're lost, right? The second question that God says is, is a fascinating one. And we never preach about it on Sunday mornings because it has the word naked in it. And God says to Adam, he looks at him and goes, who told you you were naked? Now the word naked is an interesting word because it means I'm lacking and I am responsible to fill up in myself where I'm lacking. I got to do something about this. Nobody else can do this for me. And so what God is essentially saying is, Adam, who convinced you that you were lacking in anything? Now, as Christians, one of the things we love to guard ourselves against is deception. We don't want to be deceived about anything. And so that's, I, th- I think, probably the greatest Christian fear is deception. Can I just give you a really, really quick little nugget that'll help you out in that? All deception you ever face in this life will first be tied to a perception of lack. All deception. Always begins with a perception of lack. I'm missing this. I'm lacking this. I don't have. I don't have. I don't have. In, in Psalm 23, David has a revelation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, in, in that place where I am surrendered to the leading of my father, my good father, I know I'm lacking in nothing. Paul, who's in prison, about to lose his head, says, hey, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I can do it with a little. I can do it with a lot. I'm complete. Lacking in nothing. Can all, all, do all things through Christ. I mean, it's like fascinating how he realizes in the presence of God, doesn't matter what's going on around him or what it seems like he's lacking in his flesh, he realizes as long as he's got the presence of God, he has everything he needs and he'll be taken care of. Lacking in nothing. So Adam and Eve lose their identity and this is where everything goes wrong. Uh, we, we have a, a thing with the, the original sin concept that has really got to be dealt with and, and, if, and love Joel, I know his heart and I know we we're, I mean, we're brothers so we have the same spiritual papa, Jack. And, uh, and you guys have met Jack Taylor. What a, what a great guy. And, uh, and so this is, this is something that's a really big deal to Jack and really to all of us who are part of that, part of that crew. <clears throat> The idea of a sin nature, because we got to sell this really quick. Heart and soul conference, you got to know something about a sin nature. People say, can I, do I have a sin nature? Am I stuck with one? Well, you can have one if you want one. It's an option, but you don't have to. So how does that work? Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. You guys remember the very first murderer in the Bible? His name was Cain. And Cain kills his brother. God comes to Cain and he says this. Hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And this is a really important phrase that God says. What God doesn't say is, hey, Cain, sin is in you because of what your parents did. God doesn't say to Cain, Your parents messed up. You're stuck with this. He says sin is at the door. In other words, it's your choice to open it or not. Can you have a sin nature? Sure, if you want one. But you don't have to. More on that another time. Hmm. How much time do I have? It's Friday. We don't have to be anywhere, right? They told me 9 o'clock, but... mm. Here's an extra. This is an extra point. This is fun. This, this is what Tracy calls a golden rabbit trail. We'll see. There's a really little known character in the story of Cain in Genesis 4. His name is Lamech. And Lamech has, has one mention in the Bible, and it's a poem. And this is what he says. His, his forefathers is Cain, and Noah is Lamech's son. And, and Lamech says... I have killed a man because he wounded me. And if Cain's vengeance be sevenfold, mine shall be 70 times seven. 
Now that phrase was actually picked up and was super popular in Hebrew culture. And you can see it a ton in writings known as the Talmud. It's, it's rabbinical sayings that are 6,000 pages plus long. I know you guys have all read it like twice, right? And in there, it's a really common thing whenever you get offended to say something like, yeah, though, though so-and-so vengeance be sevenfold, mine shall be 70 times seven. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how often do I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus goes, you know what? We're gonna take right now and we're gonna reverse a curse that has been plaguing this nation for a long time. And he says to Peter, no, you don't forgive seven times. You forgive 70 times seven. And what was originally spoken by Lamech in Genesis 4 to multiply vengeance Jesus turns around, moves in the opposite spirit, and speaks a word to multiply grace. All right? That was extra. All right. When man sinned against God and ate of the tree, he turned his back on God. And for whatever reason, we have this idea that God turned his back on us. But that's not necessarily the case. What God does is he actually does this. This is where I get a workout. He gets in our face and he confronts us. And he does something called making a covenant. Now the Bible, which this book is my life, right? And the older I get, the more important it becomes. People often will say, this is a love letter between God and man. Okay, there's places in this book that tell me I can't eat bacon. And if you tell me I can't eat bacon, I'm not feeling the love, right? So more accurately, what the Bible actually is, is a record of God's covenants with man. And that's what God does. He shows up to man and he makes a covenant. He says, we're going to covenant together. And this is how we're going to have relationship. And man goes, super. All right, cool. You mean we can still hang out? And God says, yes, I love you. You're awesome. Oh, I just want you back to myself. I see you as a king and a priest. And man goes, great. And then after a couple of generations, we turn our back on God again. And here comes God with another covenant. And then we do this thing. And here comes God with yet another covenant. And it's like God's getting worn out by this point. He's not, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Here's an example. God comes to a guy named Abraham. Guys remember the story of Abraham. And he says to Abraham, by the way, Abraham isn't chosen as the father of faith because he's a super moral and upright guy. Just saying. He just happened to be one of the only people in that time that actually wanted to hang out with God. God's like looking around going, anybody want to be a friend? And Abraham goes, I'll hang out with you. I'm old, I'm you know, kind of out of touch, so yeah. Want to go for a walk in the desert, Abraham? Abram? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. See all these stars? They're all going to be your kids. Seriously? Okay, I mean, I'm super old, and my wife, I mean, we're just like long past that, and we've never had kids, and you see, but whatever you say, I'll go with it. That's why Abraham is righteous, because he heard a word from God that was too good to be true, and he believed it. It's not because he was a moral man. How do we know this? Because he goes home and tells his wife, you'll never believe what God said. We're going to have more kids than the stars. And she laughs at it and comes up with the worst idea in human history. God needs some help. Go sleep with the maid. And Abraham goes, okay. So this is why we know that Abraham is not a super moral guy. When Isaac is born... Hagar and Ishmael over here. That's the maid and her kid now. So Abraham has a son named Ishmael over here. When Isaac is actually born to Sarah, the child of promise, Sarah gets jealous and goes, hey, send the maid and her kid, who happens to be Abraham's son, out into the desert to die. And Abraham goes, sure enough. The father of faith, all right? Where does righteousness come from? You getting everything right? No, you agreeing with God. This is how big of a deal it is that your alignment with, I don't care how more of a life you live. If you live without any sense of being obedient to the word of the Lord, it doesn't really matter. People say all the time, well, you know, I believe God. Do you understand that being a believer has never been the deal? Jesus never told us to make, make converts, to get people to pray a prayer and confess to believe something, then that's it. He told us to make disciples. And you can become a believer in a moment by faith, but you will not be a disciple in a moment by faith. I don't care how much faith you have. It's going to take a lifetime to actually be a disciple. This is extra too. I don't know, this is for somebody in the room. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is somebody who says yes to Jesus and then does it again tomorrow. 
In other words, you never stop saying yes. How about this? A disciple is somebody who says yes to Jesus even when your yes is about to cost you. So you're burning for God right now. Cool. Come back in 20 years and tell me you're still burning for God. Well, I'm a believer. So what? So is the devil. The Bible says the devil and the demons, they believe and they tremble. The devil is a believer who has no intention of listening to and walking in obedience to the voice of the Lord. You know how many Christians I run into who claim to be believers but have absolutely no intention of walking in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Which means you can sit in church and have more common with the devil than you do with Jesus. For somehow that was just fun to say. I just, that just felt really fun to say. I'm just saying this. Listen, you've been hearing, I think you've been hearing a lot, and you will in this culture, about hearing the voice of the Lord. Why is that such a big deal? Because without his voice, we have no direction. Without any direction, we're making this stuff up on our own. And listening to the voice of the Lord doesn't make you a slave. Do you understand the word of the Lord is the most powerful force in the entire universe? God's words create worlds. But he will not use his words to twist, break, bend your will. He simply offers his words as an invitation. And you and I get to choose whether to surrender to that word or not. He doesn't come to take away your freedom. He comes to invite you to the more. Jesus shows up. God's just done with this covenant thing this over and over again because God makes covenant with man. Man breaks the covenant and God finally says, we're done. We're making a new covenant, a covenant that's never been done before. It's called the new covenant. It's always going to be new. There's never going to be another one. It's always eternally a new covenant. And let me tell you why the new covenant is so, so good. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6, God is talking about the Messiah. And this is what he says. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. So who's the Messiah? Jesus. So this is the father revealing to the prophet Isaiah that Jesus is going to be the covenant now for the people. Why is the new covenant so good? Because it's not made between God and man. It's made between God the Father and God the Son. And you are brought in to Christ the Son. This is why the new covenant is so good. You didn't make it, so you can't break it. Come on. That's good stuff. Woo. So you're in Christ. How'd you get in Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 tells us, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not by your doing, by his doing. If you asked a first century Christian, how did you become a Christian? They would begin like this, and the writings bear this out. In the first three centuries, they talk about what Jesus did. There's 18 sermons in the book of Acts. They're all about what Jesus did. Add 2,000 years of religion onto it and ask anybody today, how did you get saved? And it will always begin with this word, I. Somewhere over the last 2,000 years, we've put more emphasis on what you do than what he's done. We'll just let that sit. But tomorrow night, I'm going to hit that one, all right? <clears throat> Jesus shows up. God in the flesh shows up. He starts choosing people we would have never chosen. And here is God in Christ, in the flesh, and he's among us, and he's doing amazing things. And we're looking at him like, whoa, what is up with this guy? He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. What do we do with God in the flesh? Do we worship him? Do we exalt him? No. We kill him. This is what we do with Jesus. But here's the cool thing about what Jesus does, is he doesn't go into the grave by himself. He actually takes you with him. Good chairs. <clears throat> he takes you and I with him into the grave. And this, by the way, is, is 
God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represented in Christ. How do we know this? Two things. Colossians 2, 9, and 10 say that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Spirit, and Son, dwelt in a body. Who is hanging on the cross? God in the flesh. And what is he doing? Is he submitting to the wrath of... No, he's there. Whose wrath is being poured out upon Jesus? Ours. Yours, mine, all of our judgments and all of our punishments and all of our wrath, at our worst, we kill our own creator. And this is what he says. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Wrap your mind around that theologically for just a second. He doesn't say forgive them because they're obviously very sorrowful about what they're doing and they're like super repentant. And so based upon that, I'm gonna go ahead and release forgiveness. He doesn't say that. He initiates with grace in our ignorance at our darkest. And when he raises from the dead, he doesn't do what I would do. I would go to the house of the people that killed me. I'd be like, see, look, you put that, see that scar right there? You did that. Yeah, you better run. I'm back. Come, I mean, I would I just be ornery about it. He has no interest. Listen, if dropping the hammer on humanity was going to happen, he would have done it at the resurrection. That would have been the time to do it. Those people killed their own creator. Who is in more deserving need of judgment than that? But he doesn't. He looks at us and gives us grace. That's what he's like. That's what God is like. I know I'm going to go past time, but here's a fun bit of heresy for you. (laughs) Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's got two thieves, one on each side. (laughs) My daughter's laughing because she knows this. I don't know why I'm saying this. It's like half of you don't get up and walk out right now. It'd be like a miracle. Okay. Here we go. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's got two thieves on one side. He's got the thief over here. We'll call him the penitent thief and over here the unrepentant thief. This guy over here is mocking and this is what he's saying. Hey, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself and us. Technically, he just asked for salvation. As a matter of fact, he's the only one that does. It's a terrible sinner's prayer, but, right? This guy over here, we'll just assume he leans out, right? And he looks over and goes, goes, hey, leave this guy alone. He's innocent. We're getting what we deserve, but he, he's totally innocent. Jesus, when you get to where you're going, give me a thought. Think about me. He knows instinctively where he's going, wherever it is, is going to be different where this, than where this guy's going. And he doesn't ask to go along. He just simply says, when you get to where you're going, remember me. This is the way we picture the story. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not you. You. (laughs) The way we've always heard it. Right? Except, what he just said is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In other words, in their ignorance, forgive them. Who's more ignorant than this guy here? And really this guy too. And all these people standing down here responsible for him dying. Does the father answer the prayers of the son? Sure hope so for all of our sake. Father forgive them. They know not what they do. He's appealing to grace to be released over the ignorant. Which both these guys qualify. I, I, I don't know. I can't prove this can't prove this to be right, but you can't prove me wrong either. So we'll find out someday. I just wonder if he didn't take them both home. I just wonder. I just wonder if it wasn't like, hey, guys, be with me, okay? I know, you're just ignorant about what I just said, but I'm, I'm taking you both home. It's interesting because James and John argued tons over who was going to sit on his right and on his left, like who's going to be the greatest. And he looked at him and goes, you guys have no idea what you're asking. It's interesting because in the moment where he's redeeming the world, who's on his right and on his left? Thieves. No-named thieves. They don't even get a credit in the story. 
We don't even know who they are. And those are the ones on his right and on his left. And his final act on this earth as a man prior to the resurrection is to say, take a thief home. And I think he took a couple. I think he took more than that. Anyway, here's here's an extra thought. You think he just kind of went, hey guys, okay, before we get there, we got one more stop on the ministry itinerary. It's going to be rough, all right? I'm just saying, super captive audience, but, but this one's going to be hell. <laughs> Those of you who read your Bibles, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Peter writes in his letters, he says that Jesus actually descended, went to the souls to preach the gospel to the souls of men in prison from the time of Noah. In other words, from the time of Noah all the way, the worst generation that had ever been all the way, it pretty well covers everybody. And people say, well, could they receive that word? Could they actually respond? There's two key words in that phrase that tell us the answer. One is he uses the word gospel. And the word gospel means good news. And how is it good news if you don't have the chance to respond to it? And the second thing is he's preaching the gospel to the souls of men. In other words, actually people. So what does he do? Does he go and empty hell out? Certainly appears like he gives them the opportunity. I'm just trying to challenge your concepts of the goodness of God and just tell you that, again, God is better than you think. And just when I think I've seen the limits of his goodness, suddenly I take another look and he offends my mind to reveal my heart. Jesus, when he raises from the dead, he doesn't just raise by himself. He brings us back with him, newness of life. He resurrects us and we think, okay, now we're back here. Face-to-face relationship with God. But every now and then I turn away from the Lord. And what happens? Does he turn his back on me? And this is the way a lot of people live their new covenant Christian life. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And I'll turn back to him. Beg, 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 please, please. Okay, fine. It's not the way it is. I want you to think of this simple phrase and I want you to get it in your mind. Don't ever let it leave you. It runs through my mind hundreds of times a day. It's like a loop that brings my heart more joy than I can even begin to describe. And it's simply this phrase, no distance and no separation. No distance, no separation. It's intoxicating how good that phrase is. No distance, no separation. Where are we now? Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Ready? This is, this is in heaven now. Preached all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 goes like this. To him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The posture of where you belong in the new covenant is eternally and forever where you started all the way at the beginning. No distance, no separation. Even in heaven, what did the cross and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ do? The resurrection power of Jesus Christ saved us, yes, but not just for the afterlife, for your whole life, and in the afterlife, beyond this realm of physicality, into an eternity that has already begun for you. You're not sitting there before the throne trying to beg God for some sort of like, uh, you know, penitent mercy, because from what he sees, you are actually here. The resurrection actually gives you a backstage pass to the throne room. And you say, wait, 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 that's just to him who overcomes. Revelation goes on to tell us that we overcome by A, the blood of the lamb, B, by the word of our testimony. The blood of the lamb is what Jesus did. The word of our testimony is you talking about what he did which is exactly what we're doing right now. (laughs) That's the deal with the gospel. It's better news than we ever thought. And here's the, the great thing, and that is every single day, I become more and more aware of my reconciled union in Christ. See, without realizing this, then I have no idea what it means to be more than a conqueror. We're more than a conqueror through him who loved us, right? You know what it means to be more than a conqueror? 
Let's say I get into a, 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 a boxing match. I'm not a boxer, but let's say that I was. And I get into a boxing match, and, uh, and, and, and I, I'm just like, I go 12 rounds, and, and I'm beaten half dead, and I get done, and I'm at the end, and, and, and they raise my hand in victory, because I won. I am a conqueror. And then my lovely wife, Tracy, steps into the ring, takes the $20 million prize check that I just won, and I hand it to her and say, here you go. I may be a conqueror, but she is more than a conqueror. And the reason is because she never had to throw a punch, never broke a nail, never got a hair out of place, and she reaps the full benefits of a fight she never had to fight. Why? Because we're in covenant union. I'm more than a conqueror. In Revelation chapter 5, God says he's made us to be a kingdom and priests unto him. He's made us to be a kingdom of priests. Men from every tribe and tongue and nation, humanity, people from every tribe, tongue and nation, and has made us to be king, a kings and priests. A collection of kings to be a kingdom. A kingdom of priests is what it is. And, and the idea is that we're always praying, God, let your kingdom come. But the reality is, is, is in Revelation 5, you realize that whenever we pray, God, let your kingdom come, we're only praying for ourselves. We're not praying for something to come apart from us. See, the kingdom actually is within you. And Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or beyond all you could think, according to the power at work within you, to him be glory in the church. You and I were created to carry the glory of God. See, the kingdom is who you are. When you begin to discover who you are, then you realize, how did I get here on the throne? How in the world did I even get here? It's because of what he did. 100%. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The word for world is the word cosmos with a K. It means everything that's qualified to be a creation. God was in Christ reconciling, making at one the world with himself. And this is the way he did it. It goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, by not counting our trespasses against us. Think about that. It's not that God looked around and go, okay, let me find somebody who's not sinning. No, he looked at an entire world full of transgression. And he said, you know, I'm just going to refuse to allow their transgressions to be put in their account. And on the cross, when he took our sin on himself, he gave us the exchange of all of his righteousness. Which means... You and I actually, ready? Oh, goodness, I know this is so uncomfortable for some. It's uncomfortable for me too. But it's a good declaration to know that you and I are actually as righteous as Jesus. Otherwise, the Bible would have never said that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Why do we keep sinning? Why do we keep struggling? I'd like to suggest to you it's because we don't fully comprehend or understand this. No distance, no separation between he and I. Jesus says these strange phrases like, be perfect for your father's perfect. What? Be holy, for your father's holy. He wasn't giving you an assignment to become something. He was giving you a prophetic revelation of your present identity from heaven's perspective. He's saying, because he is, you are. You say, well, I I know I'm not. Okay, does Jesus live in you? If you invited him into your life, if you said, Holy Spirit, fill me, well, here's the deal. When he comes and fills you, when a holy God 
fills you with his Holy Spirit, one of two things is going to happen. Either God is going to lose his holiness or you're going to lose your sin. And God does not lose. Do you know who you are? And again, you say, if I believe this for a second, it'd just make me proud or it would make me arrogant. No, no, because you didn't do it. And you can't take pride for something you didn't do. You know what it would make you? If you begin to believe this, like for real, grateful, it fill you with gratitude because you've been given a gift you could never earn. You've been given a gift by grace that you can never earn by works. And when you and I live in this place, then we're surrendered to actually let the power and the presence of the Lord flow through us. This is where I believe the world becomes radically changed and radically transformed. And all of us, all of us, this weekend, my prayers, heart and soul, will find ourselves in a place, no distance and no separation, on a whole other level than we ever thought possible. I'd like you to stand with me tonight. I know tonight I've given you a lot to think about, but my prayer is that these seeds of reformation become a revelation that absolutely transforms your life. The cross is not a transaction, it's a transformation. And the Bible says that we're changed, transformed from glory to glory. And if tonight, if you have struggled at any point, maybe recently even, with feeling distant from God, feeling separate from him, not feeling worthy of his love, not feeling or being aware of his presence, more, more aware of your own failure or your own unrighteousness than you are of his righteousness in you. You say, Bill, I need that no distance, no separation revelation tonight. This can be for some, listen, this may be the weirdest altar call you've ever seen when it comes to salvation because it actually involves every single person in here, even those who call themselves believers and are well on a road to discipleship. But some of you who consider yourselves to be disciples of Christ have been following who is supposed to be in you, trying to achieve or get closer to a God who's actually taken up residence in you. But God wants to stir a new kind of hunger in you belief tonight. And it's not a hunger based upon lack. See, having hunger for God is spiritually legal, and you should. But it's not based upon our lack. See, an unhealthy hunger for God is, I need more of you and I don't have it and I'm lacking so much. That's called strive. This is what surrender looks like. Yum. I've tasted. You're really good. I want more. I already have all of you, but I want more of what I already have. That's called hunger. That's authentic, true spiritual hunger. And in the world, when we are physically hungry, we eat, so we won't be hungry anymore. In the kingdom of God, if you want to get that kind of hunger, you've got to feast on his goodness. And the more you feast, the more hungry you become for what you already have, to the point where, like David, even in the old covenant, said this, my heart and my flesh long for you. David spent so much time feasting on the goodness of God that he physically developed a hunger for God. Show me somebody who has no appetite for the things of God and I'll show you somebody who hasn't given any attention and affection to the presence of God in a while. See, whatever has your attention has your affection. And tonight I want to draw our attention to him through this entire time of just me yakking and talking at you. I hope you see him more. I hope your eyes are drawn to open and maybe even for the very first time to just see the face of your father delighted and adoring you. Would you just tip your head back, close your eyes, and just see him. Just picture this is my very first conscious experience from the origin of all humanity, my very first moment of time was to open my eyes.
to behold the face of an adoring father. So God, heal us with your gaze tonight. Heal us with that love that flows from your eyes. With the breath, Yahweh, that breathes life into our spirit. And God, let us feel your embrace tonight. Let us feel your embrace tonight. Would you just let your hands leave their sides and just stretch them out? And just let the Father embrace you tonight. Just let the Father embrace you tonight. See the gaze of love in his eyes. There's no condemnation in his voice. John 14, 20, Jesus says, in that day you will know I am in the Father. You are in me and I am in you. Tonight, you say, I want all distance and separation to be done with. I I just want him to just come and erase all distance and all separation. Then get out from your seat. Meet me down here at the front. I want to pray for you tonight. Let's worship together for a moment as you come.